0: Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlogs the Podcast, where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. Hello. And our guest, who has never met a theme episode he didn't like, Lozzie. Or, as I like to call him, Lazbert, Aloysius, Sinjin, Aglybum, Or is it Aglybum or Agly Chester? I can never keep those straight
1: uh i like both chest and bums.
0: so it's true okay ugly <laughs> chester bum
2: <laughs> i like how the name gets more and more complicated as we yeah journey what on
0: annoying nicknames to come <laughs> we we like to have fun on this podcast i don't know if you know that or not <laughs> we love joy Lassie and I love Joy. We do
1: love Joy. And I love Love Joy, which was a uh, TV program in the 80s about an antique dealer in the UK, um, played by Ian McShane.
0: Huh.
2: I-, I heard a lot of things that I liked in that premise.
0: <laughs> you didn't expect that to happen, <laughs> no did you? It's all good. Speaking of television. And I'm really glad you're here with us today, Lassie. Because, you know, I was thinking a few weeks ago that, you know, Americans just don't talk about themselves very often. <laughs> you know, we, we don't talk about how we document our history through pop culture, and we certainly don't critically examine our own pop culture institutions. So I thought, how could we play our, our part here on the podcast in fixing that? And then it hit me. We should do an entire episode about pop culture icon, James Vander Beek.
2: I like that this was actually just a way for you to watch Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. I mean... I like this explanation that you're giving. Let's be really honest why you actually wanted to do this. (laughs) It's
0: more than that. Because, and Lazi, I don't know if you've heard this yet. We talked about last week how Tessa has just constantly been pestering me to watch certain things. And this summer has been the summer of that. You know, we watched the Errol Flynn movies. We watched Selfie. Okay. But Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 was the last of that list. It coincided nicely. With me finally convincing Tessa to watch Dawson's Creek because okay. the One Tree Hill recap podcast mentions often that they filmed in Wilmington immediately after the Dawson Creek kids did for their show. So that got Tessa interested. I believe that.
2: And James Vanderbeek has been in a couple of episodes of One Tree Hill.
0: Right. Wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. He has? Really? Okay. My- one tree hill is very limited to like maybe the first season or two but um yeah i don't i mean it was all about basketball right which is the only sport in america that matters
0: weird he
2: plays this is he plays i think it's in the fifth or sixth season he plays a coked out sex addict director who wants to direct the film based on lucas's book
1: <laughs> <laughs> so he plays Dawson. So like this is the point is like you called him James Vanderbeek, much like you called me accurately Losma Aloysius and Jin <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, bum <Agri-chesterbum. laughs> When actually what you mean when you say James Vanderbeek is Dawson, because he is Dawson.
0: That is my my unified theory of all of these is that James Vanderbeek, the person, was subsumed by his character Dawson Leary. And so that from that point forward, it's actually Dawson Leary. So when we get to Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, Dawson Leary is playing a version of James Vanderbeek.
1: I feel like we're going way off uh, track straight away. So I'm going to steer into that. <laughs> uh, so we're basically saying, like, James Vanderbeek in some way was sacrificed to some sort of demonic ritual and his character subsumed him and then there is an effectively exorcism through don't trust the bitch in apartment 23 so, and or is that is that exorcism So work?
0: I think that and I mean our expert on all things North Carolina Andy is not here with us born and raised in North Carolina whereas I only lived there for about 6 years However I would in fact believe that a state that actually has a, a a town called Cape Fear would in fact be a place where such a thing could happen. I think you might be right. Yeah, we, we really came up with a creative premise for this episode and then we backfilled it by saying, <laughs> What else has James Vanderbeek done? Well, he did that movie and who's gonna watch it? And as I said, Lazie volunteered. I love theme. This week. See me steer it back to this <laughs> Where are we going to start. The
2: are
0: you ready? This week Tessa doesn't want to wait for our lives to be over. Lazi learned some important lessons about human anatomy, and I pick a person who annoys me, figure out their deepest darkest fears, what would psychologically break them and ruin their lives forever, and do it.
2: Got it. <laughs> it's
0: a good time you guys. So the thing that will boost our SEO the most this week,
2: oh, God,
0: is that lovable gang of kids down at the creek. Wait, I'm. I thought
1: I. I thought I was here to boost your <laughs> SEO. <laughs> I mean, it, it some can, false pretenses already. Being it can be two here, things,
0: and that's what we call synergy. Okay.
2: Please keep those words out of your <laughs> Syn- mouth. I never Syn- want to hear them hey, on this podcast hey,
0: again. <laughs> synergy.
2: Oh God. We're this a is good this time. is already this is already going well. Why do you hate joy, <laughs> Tessa? I want you to know, Lazi, I'm pretty sure ever since you came on the music episode a few months ago that every single monkey episode Sam has quoted you saying why do you hate joy at least once an episode. It should be like its own unofficial podcast within a podcast at this point.
1: I, I feel like you need a soundboard of me just, I just saying that. Just I just really
0: want to top so, like, when we... <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, come on, mate. <laughs> I'm not stopping you. Like, I'm not there, but...
0: It gets better. I want to top our camp episode. <laughs> where? I mean, it where- seems like the
2: appropriate episode to Exactly.
0: Top. Where? we managed with, with Matt to, to simultaneously do a very, if I might say so myself, erudite reading of the subject matter. But we also went so far off the rails, Tessa almost cut my mic. <laughs> Finding the nexus of those two things is really what I think the sweet spot is.
1: So what you're saying is you want to top that episode. So you're going to start with the ultimate bottom, which is Dawson Leary.
0: I think that's accurate. Tessa, take it. Tell us about Dawson's Creek.
2: How am I supposed to follow that? Although I do agree with you, Lassie, actually, remembering the (laughs) first two seasons of Dawson's Creek. So I did watch the first two seasons of Dawson's Creek. I only meant to watch one season, which is what I usually do for television shows to prepare for this podcast. But I got so into it, I ended up watching two instead. So, Dawson's Creek is a teen drama television series about the lives of a close-knit group of friends in the fictional town of Capeside, Massachusetts, which bears no resemblance whatsoever to Wilmington, South Carolina. None, none none at all.
0: whatsoever.
2: I guess I know it begins in high school because the first two seasons mostly take place in high school. I know that eventually they like go to college or they move past high school, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. The series stars James Vanderbeek. Beek as Dawson Leary, as aforementioned, Katie Holmes as his best friend and love interest, Joey Potter, Joshua Jackson as Pacey Witter, and Michelle Williams as Jen Lindley. The show was created by Kevin Williamson and debuted on the WB back when it was known as the WB from 1998 to 2003. And in fact, that during that time period, it, along with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, was the WB's flagship shows. Like those were the shows that really ran that network for a long time right before the WB combined to make the CW. I'm not sure what year that happened though. Do you remember if it was before the show ended or
0: after? I I think it is after.
2: After. Okay.
1: Well, Buffy moved to UPN right. as well, right? So I don't believe that, I can't believe that I know that given that <laughs> none of those are channels that I watched.
0: Well, we well, the, the- we recently found out this week that the average viewer of the CW broadcast network is 58 years of age, which makes about as much sense as you knowing about our broadcast network.
2: The Buffy observation does make sense. It makes sense that you would know that because the move of Buffy from WB to the other channel was a move that allowed them to do things that were not allowed on the wb such as having willow and tara kiss and all of that stuff
1: I didn't i didn't realize that so i mean i okay i know nothing about american network television and the different rules so i didn't realize that that allowed that you know what 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 were the uh, I, obviously we're talking about a show that has wholesome <laughs> theoretically writ through the heart of it so i'm very interested in How the law, how I guess the rules and the the rules of the road, road at least played a part in
0: that. It wasn't rules of broadcast. It was these channels, the WB and UPN, and then later their combination there too, the CW, all had different mission statements, all had different ideal audiences. So it wasn't so much an issue of standards and practices dictating government policy. It was, this is who our viewers are, and this is what they want, and this is what they're going to get, and you better do it.
1: Yeah, because in season two, uh, sex causes people to go to hell
2: and become demons. Exactly. Absolutely. It's the moral of the story. Don't have sex with anyone, and they won't turn evil and try to kill you. Right. But back to (laughs) Dawson Leary.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But enough about Dawson Leary.
2: This show unlike Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a very non-heightened show. Like this show is supposed to be like slice of life. It's supposed to be it there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing dramatic like high drama like uh I can't even call that high drama. Um what would we call Riverdale as a show?
0: <laughs> An
2: amalgamation Grandma of bait. what?
0: Grandma or- bait. Grandma
2: Betty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so it's a niche genre. It's, it's not heightened so like a lot of the cw shows now have either some sort of supernatural element or superhero element although that's starting to wind down or they have like this very like over the top very uh, heightened is just the best word i can think of to describe this That is not Dawson's Creek. Like This is prior to all of that. It is a show that is a lot more wholesome, I would say, at least in the first two seasons, than, say, something like One Tree Hill or The O.C. or any of those other shows that sort of came out afterwards. So a lot of these problems that they come up with in the show are quote-unquote real-life problems that teenagers often deal with like there's issues of romance and dating there's issues about sex issues about bullying the educational industrial complex uh the meaning of life abuse familial drama wait, wait. Like-
1: I- i'm gonna jump in on the educational industrial <laughs> complex <there. laughs> So my memory of the first couple of seasons isn't clear, uh, detailed clear. Uh, what was So what was the role that that played? How
2: did that well, play out? So a lot show? of this, sh- uh, actually, what's interesting about this show is that unlike a lot of teen dramas that I've seen, we actually get to see the main characters in class and completing homework assignments. Hmm. So like they are actually like participating in school, but there are episodes that directly focus on... The issues that students face when dealing with the way that schools talk down to them or the way that schools treat them like they're a product that they'll just input all this information into you and you'll just understand it and have learned something. So you get a lot of stuff about like hmm. how schools are kind of ineffectual about bullying. You get a lot of storylines about hmm. teachers and how they abuse their power or what, you know, what role does school punishment play like detention? you know like stuff like that is very this this show is very interested in and in fact there is a double part episode in season 2 I don't want to give anything away it might be my favorite storyline in season 2 where they directly tackle a school's failure to take care of a student in a very tense and intimate vulnerable situation and it's a very fascinating storyline. And I honestly don't know if I've seen a lot of shows outside of my so-called life really try to talk about education in this way.
0: I, I think we want to we slap a spoiler warning on this ep- at this point because I, I do think we should talk about Jack and specifically Caresmith's Smith, Care character, Jack, Christmas, who later yeah. plays the principal on Riverdale which is delicious. Wow. Care Smith has a, it's, it's interesting how the show deals with it. It's like he accidentally has a realization that he's gay well, and is, and is simult. And that comes out as does Jack because he is being bullied by a teacher.
2: Yeah. So like he And poetry. Yeah, so there's there's a really horrible English teacher in this and like he does all the things that teachers should not do. Unfortunately there are teachers that are like this. It's a,
0: it's a reverse dead poet society.
2: Yeah, where they're like
0: Oh
1: go- Sam, my friend, we're just <laughs> I was just about to say the same thing.
2: But yeah, he like he outs Jack as Jack is trying to figure out his sexuality and he outs him in like the most embarrassing right. way possible. And a lot of this, and this happens like at the beginning of the episode arc. And a lot of the aftermath is Pacey trying to stand up for Jack and trying to basically figure out how to get this teacher fired, <laughs> I guess, or like how to like <laughs> defend himself and his friends against this teacher. It's a really interesting storyline and again like surprisingly good at talking about queerness in a time period where I would have been very afraid to watch something about queerness
1: yeah I remember specifically because Kersmith was not great about this because I rem- I specifically remember at the time him giving interviews talking about but downplaying the importance of uh, of a gay character on television, get downplaying. I believe it was the first one of the first gay kisses on television as well in the U.S. at least. So I I, I remember him backing away a lot from it, and I wonder how much that was the industry at the time and his own personal fears about what would, what would it be like to be tired cast as homosexual? So I'm, I'm interested to see how that plays out, how that reflects for, through the episodes.
0: Well, and I don't know. I mean, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but you know, Kevin Williamson, the story is, you know, of course I'm not there. I can't verify, but the story is that Kevin Williamson hired John Wesley ship to play Dawson's dad. Not just because he's a great actor, but because his iteration of the Flash television show, one of the reasons it did not survive is John Wesley's ship sexuality. So, I mean, this is this is clearly something that Kevin Williamson's thinking about, not to mention the fact that this episode or these series of episodes was written by your friend and mine.
2: Greg Berlanti. Yeah, Greg Berlanti got his start on Dawson's Creek. And so I I got so excited when I saw his name on several of these episodes. But specifically, (laughs) this set of episodes was written by a gay man. And so that, to me, is also something that's really important because at this time, you just didn't have a lot of queer people who are actually writing queer storylines. And so that's why a lot of them don't age very well. And I'm not saying everything's perfect in Dawson when it comes to queerness, but it's a lot better than I thought it would be going into it.
0: Well, that's one of the things, you know, when the culture shifts so quickly, because, you know, the, the whole outing of Jack comes down to a, a pronoun in a, in a poem. And we've come all the way around. On issues of people are like, we didn't (laughs) use pronouns and I don't even know what a pronoun is. Okay. And I would, I would, so I would describe season two as a hotbed of queerness, but I'm definitely saying that in a different way than.
2: Yeah, it's not, it's not quite the same.
0: Right. But it's, but the thing about it is, is even though you've got quote unquote, the right people dealing with this issue in a, in a nuanced way for the time, the fact is that it's changed so much. And, you know, we're not talking about unrequited love, which is, it it doesn't change a lot between now and 500 years ago. Like, unrequited love is still unrequited love, right? Like, those things we play with, but they're issues that don't change much. Whereas issues with queerness, issues of even related back, all the way back to stuff that, you know, kind of came out of the uh, civil rights era. That stuff's still rapidly changing because it's not... We haven't settled into a groove with it. We're still debating it. Whereas those tale-as-old-as-time tropes that we're supposed to teach in English class, they're safe because we know they're not going to change. So if you're dealing with an issue like queerness, it's going to seem outdated pretty quickly because the issue is going to keep changing. That doesn't make it bad.
2: I actually had a problem with this show, and it's the usual problem of shows around this time and today, is that the show is very white there is one black character mm. in the first season. Uh, he is Bodie, who's Joey's brother-in-law. Yeah, he's her her brother-in-law, yes. and you see him like in a couple episodes at the beginning of season one, and then he disappears. And I was like, like, it, is he gone? Like, did he leave? Apparently, he's just off camera because the actor had to go do another show. But you don't get any sense that this town has any black people in it. I don't know. It just it feels like they're trying to be like the every like teenager. But what they're say what they're talking about are white middle class teenage problems for the most part, except for Joey, who is poor, but still who else? has a lot of privilege. Who yeah. else?
1: For a given, for yeah. a given yeah. value.
0: Who else but yeah. a solidly upper middle class Massachusetts massachusetts Massachusettser. I don't know. Who else but an upper middle-class white boy is going to idolize Steven Spielberg to <laughs> the level that Dawson idolizes <laughs> That of. is true. I mean, we come back to this. I mean,
1: more to the point, the most middle-class white boy thing you can think of, and I don't believe this happens in the first two seasons, but is that at some point, they have a yacht race yeah. for Joey's affections. Yes. Now, I love racing sure. yachts, but I am also a very middle class white boy. So. You know, the
0: thing about it is, is like, okay, bravo to this show for somehow being able to have all of these discussions about all the different things that we've seen and that we will see in later seasons, Tessa. But the main character is this like uber something. Yeah. I, I don't even know what to say. And as I constantly say while watching Dawson's Creek, this kid, this kid's world is going to get rocked when Munich comes out.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I guess I should actually talk about the main characters of this show. But like Dawson, we is are doing
0: an episode on James Vanderbeek. James ba-
2: Vanderbeek. As much as I <laughs> find him very interesting as an actor, honestly, Dawson is the least interesting part of the show for me. I mean, he's interesting. He's the person that like brings all of these people together, and I find his movie obsession charming. Although, I will say that despite the fact that they're trying to ground this show in, like, real teenage problems, none of these people talk like they're actually teenagers. Like, they all have that very, like, teen—I mean, and this becomes a thing, right? Like, we see it in Riverdale, we see it in Gossip Girl. Uh, these, These people talk the way that I think precocious teenagers wish that they talked instead of the way that teenagers actually talked. So like, this is a very smart show. All of these people yeah. know a lot of pop culture references. They know a lot of film references. They are able to discuss things in ways that are introspective and that are intelligent, which, again, I'm not sure how many 15-year-olds actually do that. But it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And for especially somebody who really likes shows like that, like Riverdale and Gossip Girl, and Gilmore Girls is another one, I find that to be very charming as well. So you have Dawson, who is the boy next door, and you have Jen, played by Michelle Williams, who is the girl next door. She is somebody who is transplanted from New York. Um, she's sent away by her parents to live with her grandparents.
0: We we talked about how uh, this is actually a headcanon crossover with Gossip Girl, right?
2: Yeah, because Gossip Girl ends. Uh, Gossip Girl begins with a girl coming back to New York after having been sent away. So there, there is a lot of a lot of overlap in those types of things. So she's like the new girl, the girl next door, and then you have Joey, who is Dawson's friend, has been friends with him since childhood. That there's a lot of romantic tension between the two of them because they're getting older, and Joey is clearly in love with him. And so like there's there's a lot of like these types of like love triangles, and then you get these other characters like Pacey, who is Dawson's best friend. Pacey's actually my favorite character of the series so far
1: yeah because you're not a monster of course.
2: <laughs> but like I, which is funny because my least favorite storyline in the first season also has to do with Pacey because I and I have to, I feel like I can say this because I want to warn people there is a storyline in the first season that definitely didn't age well in which Pacey and one of his teachers have a relationship that just does not age well at all. Like, none of that is okay. And they kind of treat it like it is okay. And uh, anyway, but once we get past that storyline, Pacey is really wonderful. And I think it that- Never
0: does anything bad ever again <laughs> in a future season.
2: Going off what you said earlier, what you brought up earlier, Lazzie about education, I actually think Pacey as a character is very much tied to education because he's a character who's constantly- getting bad grades, he's constantly getting in trouble at school, and part of that is because he has an abusive home life and he doesn't feel like he can ever live up to his father's expectations, so why try? So there's a lot of that in there, but also, Pacey is one of the smartest characters on the show. Like, he's one of those people who when he does read, he understands what he's reading and is able to draw connections between things and synthesize ideas and come up with really insightful analysis of different pieces of pop culture. However, he doesn't test well. He's like the kid who has all of Mm. these really smart, interesting things to say, and he can say them to his friends, but he can't say them in a school context. And the show is constantly playing with the tension between the slacker, loser Pacey, and the person who's actually really intelligent and really affectionate and really wants to be there for his friends. And then, of course, you also get Andy, who is Jack's sister, who has a very interesting arc. Again, this is somewhat of a spoiler, dealing with mental illness on the show. And I was actually very impressed with the way that they dealt with Those that storyline, because again, I wasn't sure exactly where they were going to go with it, but they do talk about mental illness, bipolar disorder, and some of those issues that come with people not understanding it and people, especially in the nineties, I feel like people didn't understand, well, for an example, medication we surrounding. They didn't call it, it bipolar disorder. They yeah, didn't in call the it 90s, bipolar. So. I don't even think they call it that in the in the No, like, they
0: refer to it as manic depression.
2: Manic depression. So, yeah. yeah. So like it there's a lot of very interesting ideas, but again, they're all wrapped in this like very quaint, very charming, like I would be friends with these people kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's very engaging. They have like a Breakfast Club episode. Like they have bottle episodes. Like mm. it's it's a very fun show in a lot of ways, despite dealing with a lot of serious issues.
1: I mean, Dawson is an extremely earnest oh, yes. character, mm-hmm. which I think fits his Spielberg obsession. And I think I, I like, I love actually his Spielberg obsession. I love, and this comes up again in later seasons and he gets mocked for it his his kind of response is why do you hate joy mm-hmm. like what what is it about spielberg's 80s movies that aren't perfect show me like uh you know and and i, I kind of like the way that they take him on that uh where he's not yes it is it is not the most perhaps sophisticated and certainly not the coolest filmmaker to be a fan of but makes good movies and makes people happy
0: I think the long and short of it is what a lot of people react to is that Spielberg is more important in terms of his legacy than the quality of his movies. As in the things that he has done over his career, primarily with perhaps Jaws, is better than the actual quality of his movies. That's what a lot of people react to. I, I feel like that that's over the
1: top. I think I th- honestly, I think that is revisionist. I think that <laughs> that it is it's a reaction against the theoretical populism of, of Spielberg because he made Indiana Jones. He made E.T. Yeah. He made Jaws. He made uh, Schindler's list. He like the guy has made incredible movies of multiple movies that are all very affectionate. He's not a cool movie. Yes.
2: Maker. And I've seen a lot about that recently on Twitter, especially the idea that like, you almost can't interrogate some of his movies because they are so uncool, like they're just so very sincere in the way that they examine their subject matter to the point where you can't find like purchase on them to, to, I mean, there are problems with them, but you can't like make fun of it in that way.
1: He's, he is, like Dawson Leary, an extremely earnest filmmaker.
0: Lazi, I think something you said in your description of Spielberg gets at a large Not so much about what goes on in the show, but what's gone on recently since 2016 is that was the year that populism became a bad word. Populism is no Mm. longer the property of Frank Capra through Steven Spielberg, you know, directors (sighs) who are really trying to advocate for the little guy. Populism now is about that other guy.
2: Oh, I was just gonna say, like it was when we discovered that other people would kill us that right. that populism went went away. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, not to, not not to be overly earnest, but that's also like. I don't know. No, I, I don't. I don't want to get into that because I'm just going to say that that's not populism. It's fascism, and and it's pretending that it is cool. Like I, I always
2: think of when I think of populism. A lot of times, I think this is completely digressing from Dawson's Creek. But I I <laughs> often think of the scene from the first Spider-Man movie by Sam Raimi where uh, Spider-Man comes to the, like he's he's fighting the Green Goblin over the bridge and the people on the bridge start fighting the Green Goblin too because they like, and they're like cheering for mm-hmm. him and there's like the American flag and like, there, it's very much about this like coming together of people to help because most people will do the right thing. Why I have a problem with that is because I think over the last few years we've discovered people won't do the right thing, especially if, it's in their interests not to do the right thing and so like as a mass as a yeah. mass of people not not just about fascism although that's obviously part of it too so i think that's part of why populism has lost its popularity is that we as a society have realized that like people won't actually fight the green goblin if you know if if it's if if you're going to ask them to to get vaccinated to save other people they're not going to fight the green goblin to save mary jane
1: There's a a very classic psychological experiment here, which is that if you are being attacked and you're surrounded by a group of people, don't say help. Point to someone directly and say, you help, because you can't appeal to the mass. You have to appeal to an an individual. I think that uh, I don't know what point I was going to make about that. But I think it's very interesting that, to your point, you can't can't consider the mass as a savior in
0: this place.
1: I don't know what that's got to do with (laughs) Dawson's Creek or Steven Spielberg, but I feel like we got there in the end.
0: I had a film professor, Chuck Maland, who taught... I learned a lot about populism and most of what I know about film from him over a few years. He cites that scene in Spider-Man specifically as a place where you can see populism. But the important thing, one of the important things to remember here is... Populism is and has always been because it comes out at least in film studies from Frank Capra himself, a conservative. You know, it was all about assimilating into America as an immigrant, and in some in some ways that were it was kind of like the the drawing up the bridge after you've crossed it kind of thing, mm. but even going back to mr smith goes to washington the person trying to be a true populist is basically going to be crucified jesus style right it's always true this kind of quote unquote true populism is always going to be unpopular and this is how you bring it back to dawson because dawson is desperately unpopular because of this populist strain in his filmmaking philosophy uh, madchen amick Plays a, a a guest toward the end of season two, it just eviscerates him. But the thing to remember about this is, this is Dawson will in later seasons graduate as part of the class of two thousand one. He is the first. He and his friends are the first millennial cohort. And what's part of what's so weird about this time period? It is a. It is just a severe backlash against the last gasp of Generation X idealism. You know, Generation X is known for their bitter irony, but underneath that irony is the very soft belly of idealism. Whereas I see the late 90s, this first cohort of millennial, as that coat of extreme irony that shields another coat of extreme irony. That's why Dawson's so unpopular.
2: The thing about Dawson that I think is really interesting and it does connect with all of this is that I do think that there is this sincerity to him that comes from Spielberg and comes from populism and that does make him desperately uncool and it is one of his strengths but it is also his greatest weakness because unfortunately as is brought up many times by Joey it means that he lives his life in a very idealistic way that leaves no room for people to be play any other role than what he has decided for them to play and so like you know, he's often disappointed by other people when they make different decisions than the decisions he would make. He's often really judgmental about certain actions, especially that Jen takes throughout the series. And so, or at least in the first two seasons, again, I haven't watched the rest of the series. And so it's it's very interesting the way that this show is able to explore that sincerity while also showing kind of the dark side of That type of idealism.
1: It's really interesting because obviously the show is called Dawson's Creek and Dawson is the main character. Um, but I never felt like the show didn't know that he was a bit awful, like from time to time, right? Like I never felt like they were holding him up on a pedestal and weren't prepared to interrogate the fact that to compare him to Buffy, right? Like I never felt like he was Xander. Where he was effectively allowed to get away with being f- awful because he was the author self insert uh, in Buffy um, as as Xander with Joss Whedon. I feel like with with Dawson he was allowed to be he was allowed to fail he was allowed to be obnoxious and he was allowed for the audience to know that that I, I never felt that they presented him as infallible or as the nice guy. Like, he was the nice guy, but they showed the the toxicity of that, even in an early proto way.
2: Yeah, I I really enjoyed Dawson much more than I thought that I was going to. I think it's hilarious that parents groups keep boycotting shows like this, because they get progressively more sexual as time goes on. So it seems almost quaint that, like, some parenting groups boycotted this show because they talked very frankly about issues of teen sexuality, such as masturbation, et cetera. I mean, masturbation is the subject of a joke in the cold open of the first episode of Dawson's Creek. So there, there is like, they were trying to actually talk about these issues, but they do it in such a tame way compared to something like Gossip Girl or even Riverdale talks about it in a a more explicit way. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me. But yeah, I love all of these characters. I will continue watching the show. If somehow you haven't watched the show and you like teen dramas of this kind, I would definitely recommend. I would definitely recommend it.
0: By the way, I just before we pivot, I I want to point out that so Kevin Williamson, right, is just going to be very important to Monkey uh, in the coming months because after he writes, he creates, he produces Dawson's Creek. He does a couple more shows before he writes, creates, and produces a little show from the CW called The Vampire Diaries. Kevin Williamson also wrote Scream One, Scream Two.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Scream Four, all of which he did with (laughs) Wes Craven. He also wrote I Know What You Did Last Summer and The Faculty and Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Kevin Williams's name is going to get called a few more times, particularly during
2: Spooktober. Oh, it's going to be fun.
0: It's 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 a good time, you guys. So I I threw this question in here, and I've kind of already mentioned it a little bit, but I definitely want to hear Lazzie's take on it. As I mean, Tessa, I'm sure you have a take too. But so my my question. I was nine. There are. Two time periods in pop culture that scare me. I've talked about how the end of the 60s into the 70s is a terrifying time. The end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s is a similarly scary period. Because what the hell was going on at the end of the 90s? Pop culture was kind of terrible for a while and people lost their minds.
2: Why does it scare you so much? Because it's like, what are you thinking I about mean, specifically? Well,
0: this is kind of a prelude to talking about Varsity Blues, which is just a weird little movie <laughs> that is a reflection it's of a its problem. time, right? Like, all the things with this time. Like, it really just seems like a, a wasteland of... I don't well, know. I, that, I'm asking you.
1: I So, I, I mean, there's, there's a couple of sides to that. So, first thing is that not all culture is American. And... um <laughs> so
0: (laughs) wait whoa i like at least once a podcast when andy's not here i have to play contrarian hold on really
1: no not really no it's all american so so it's very interesting that you talk about the man's family i don't know anything about the man's family the man's family does not loom over the uk in any way shape or form no one cares about it no one pays any attention to it if you talk to me about like the 60s going to the 70s i care about the beatles and the rolling stones and 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 the music scene and uh, everything that's good about that the manson family does not feature into it at all if you talk about the late 90s in the uk you're talking about the return of the labor government to power for the first time in 20 years you're talking about Britpop. you're talking about um things coming in like uh i don't know this is a bit later but you've got space you've got 20 days later you've got sean of the dead you've got like you know train spotting you've got sort of urban welsh and and that sort of you've got like lad culture you've got football um being popular in different i mean uh, what english people would call football not what varsity blues would call football um so it's a completely different time for me what do i re- remember about the uh, late 90s uh, i went to university at that time i watched a lot of buffy the vampire slayer i watched a lot of dawson's creek i watched a lot of er i watched um you know all of these shows because i i sort of reached out to my my previous childhood where i lived in the states for a couple of years and and i i loved that that sort of culture um the uh, obvious election of george bush was uh, disaster and I think you should both be personally ashamed for that particularly I Tessa. didn't vote I don't for know what you were thinking. About. I,
2: I was too young <laughs> to vote for anyone
1: <laughs> right but I think what you're actually talking about is what changed everything that you you're talking about everything we're talking about here with Dawson's Creek with what changes I don't think you're talking about the end of the 90s. To be honest, I think you were talking about September 11th, 2001. And I think that that is the actual pivotal point. I think everything, I think it's difficult to look at it now without the reflection of what happened. You
0: know, that's, I I think that's interesting. I, you know, I was in, I graduated from college May of that year. I, I was in, you know, I'd been in grad school for less than a month when September 11th happened. So, you know, the period that I'm talking about is my undergrad period. And I, when I look back on it, it it just, it just feels like a very strange time. And so I would agree with you. We do look back through the filter of September 11th, except for that, except for, I feel really a very particular way about, about my college years. But, but I'd say you're probably right on the whole about that, but I do want to very, very quickly do a podcast within a podcast. (laughs) <laughs> like I, I'm super happy to be talking about these pieces of American culture when you're here, but since you brought it up, I just want to do a quick podcast within a podcast that I like to call "Lazzy tells us about Nick Hornby," because you mentioned lad lit. I just, <laughs> wow. I just need, I need a bit.
1: What What would you like to talk about with Nick Hornby? Would you like to talk about the fundamentally fantastic, badly drawn boy album and Hugo Grant performance that is about a boy? Would you like to talk about the very well adapted uh, film with uh, John Cusack being obnoxious? Uh, high fidelity. Would you like to talk about <laughs> Arsenal? Uh, you know,
0: <laughs> you know, I met badly drawn boy in uh, in Asheville, North. Carolina. Oh, California. really? Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah.
1: Are you sure you didn't? You sure you didn't just meet a tea cozy? <laughs> <heads> <laughs> that's
0: that's that's fair. That's fair. All right. That was great. This has been an episode of Lotsy Talks about Nick Hornby. <laughs> uh.
1: Just to be clear, Nick Hornby is a very clear Arsenal fan. Yeah. Uh, I am a Tottenham Hotspur fan, and these things might not mean anything to uh, your or your
0: majority. Fred Fever hits. pitch, so I I at least get it kind of.
2: No one wants to hear my thoughts about Nick Hornby. They're not pleasant. Oh Please no, I just hated High Fidelity. Fidelity. I I enjoyed the recent adaptation Hulu did with uh, Zoe Kravitz. Was right, because Zodicavitz, it was updated yeah. and it was very interesting. But the book High Fidelity, I haven't seen the one with the adaptation with John Cusack, but uh, it's everything about white male toxicity that I already knew and didn't want to read a book about. Anyway, sorry.
1: <laughs> uh, I think it, you know, is hundred percent that. Again, I think it addresses that. But equally, if you're a white male English. Londoner who likes music and football you can probably see a little bit more that you feel familiar about (laughs) and so you can kind of recognize it so it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good or. for me it's just
2: that I know that that book isn't trying to like condone everything that the main character does but at the end of the day and it might also be that I just don't have any in with the main character at all. Like I just don't relate to this person. but the way that this book is like this character is so toxic, I'm just very tired of reading things that are about men doing bad things to women. and uh, yeah, that that book is kind of about that. So
1: yeah, it's a it's very autobiographical. like this is yeah, same I didn't group. read
2: it till much, much later. So I did read it out of its like cultural context. I was not familiar with Ladlit before.
1: I read that. I mean, we are so far off topic, but there, there is this this laddish culture of the 90s in the UK, and it affected football and it affected TV. It's and and as well as laddish culture from from men, there was this l- concept of ladette culture, which was uh, women being very boozy, drinking loads, you know, being outspoken. Um, heaven for. Oh friends. no! Uh, and, oh my <laughs> stars! Clutch my pearls. my stars and garters but that was like wrapped up with again football in the 90s in 1992 uh, the premier league which is the top league in in england uh had a massive investment of money and you and it it transformed the way that the number of people who saw it it transformed the the class types of people who went to see the game it increased the the amount that people watched it and it was very much that tied with music that tied with beer that tied with coming out from two decades of Tory reign into into a Labour government that was pretty popular and, and by all f- last 50 years of British government standards quite good um, and all of that culture is wrapped up and and twirled around itself. So it's very difficult to extract the good from the bad, the toxic from the non-toxic, the reactionary from the the negative, as it were.
0: You know. So I joked at the beginning that we don't talk about ourselves. I'm talking for Tessa and myself here. As as Americans, we don't do that. And and of course, that's a joke. But I I'm really glad to have this discussion while you're here, Lazi, because. I would say the thing about American pop culture, and you've done a really good job of explaining it, is that American pop culture is singular, but not monolithic. We are not the dominant culture in in the world. And if it were true, it would be by the slimmest of margins. You know, I, you definitely did have to seek out the stuff, except for Nick Hornby. And, And working at a bookstore, I sold a fair few of his books. But, outside of him, I think you had to really during this time period, because you and I, we've talked about Britpop pop uh, and the girl bands. You really had to search that out if you were here and I did it, you know? So like when you mention all those things, I'm like, Oh, that would have been a much better place to be. Mm, right. You know,
1: strengths and weaknesses. But... You know, sometimes the grass really <laughs> Everyone, is greener. The grass is well, Sometimes it really is though. <laughs> I mean, if it was a case, if it was a case of choosing between Tony Blair and George Bush, then I would say I'd, well, I'd there take you it. Go.
2: <laughs> as a segue. This is actually a good transition point because I had not watched Varsity Blues either. I watched it the other night in preparation for this podcast, oh. and my immediate reaction was we made Lazzie watch this movie. <laughs> yeah,
0: we did. <laughs> I I feel like we all learned a lot and we're gonna learn a lot about each other from this experience. I I have no regrets and i too was subjected to that movie so there you are lazi take it away what did you think about friday night lights i mean 90s Varsity blues i mean 90s friday night lights what
1: yeah it's fine <laughs> i mean like it is fine it uh, again, <laughs> i feel like I've, i that might be my other catchphrase is it's fine it's not bad actually it's fine um the last three to five minutes uh which i'm now going to refer to as sweet tea from now on because i don't want to repeat the words the last three to five minutes over and over again those annoy me but the rest of it is fine dawson is fine apart from the sweet tea it's it's weird watching this film so There is a scene in this film that is probably very well known to all of the uh, everyone in in the States, which is the uh, squirty cream bikini that Ali Lata wears. Wait, wait, what did you call
0: it? Hold on. Rewind. It's, it's, it's squirty cream. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) Okay. I'm
1: not calling it whipped cream because it's not whipped cream. It's squirty cream. Sam. <laughs> we're just going to go with dead air for a little bit. And we're just going to steer into this and see how long it lasts. A
2: while. This is what I was like when she called you Losbert the first time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you never ever just like open your mouth and push some squirty cream into it?
2: But it's not a phrase that we use here.
1: (laughs) Anyway, so this film is very much the younger sibling to Dazed and Confused. I mean, it it wants to be Dazed and Confused. It is about teenagers. It's about sports. It's about uh, high school. It's about, you know, societal hierarchies. It's... Entirely fine at all of those things. It's just not as good as Days and Confused. I think there's some interesting parts of it. I think it's very interesting that it's an MTV mu- movie, and good goddamn, do they get access to some some very well-known bands for the uh, soundtrack? You know, you've got your Green Day, you've got Offspring, you've got the Foo Fighters. Uh, it's a very well uh, well-developed soundtrack, but the music feels a little bit forced and it. it never, it never really like gels in it. You never like, boom, perfect. Oh, there was a, there's a, I think Nitro by The Offspring uh, was probably the best example that they used on it. But um, yeah, it, it's fine. Like it's about football. It's American football. It's about, you know, there's a racist bully of a coach that does not feel like um the biggest stretch that uh, uh, Papa Jolie is, um, has ever played. Uh, Ali Lata plays Ali Lata. Amy Smart plays Amy Smart. Paul Walker plays Paul Walker. Dawson plays Dawson, apart from the sweet tea. And that accent. And, um, I mean, you will the so
2: That accent is, um, it's something. It's something. It's not the worst Texas accent I've ever heard, but it is definitely a studied Texas accent.
0: By the way, Allie Larder also played Allie Larder in Dawson's Creek. Let's not forget.
2: It's a little crossover there.
1: Allie Larder plays Allie Larder in Heroes and in in everything, right? But I, But they... they there was some effort here, right? Like, her character, who's the head cheerleader, slut, whatever, sleeps with the quarterback regardless. Like, even before she comes on to Dawson's character uh, because the because Paul Walker got injured, Dawson does defend her in a separate, uh, separate conversation with Amy Smart. Like, he, he does say, no, she is smart. Like, she's got good grades. Like, they, they pay, like... A little bit of effort to try and make some of these characters three-dimensional, I think. They just don't go far enough. They don't really... They don't do what Days and Confused does. They don't go beyond and make these characters a little bit more interesting. And to me, that's kind of pays off right at the end as well okay so very very brief summary uh dawson dawson leary is uh, a backup quarterback um he's very happy being the backup quarterback because he doesn't really like playing football the the main quarterback who is paul walker uh is a hero uh he gets injured uh dawson leary is actually a maverick very good quarterback but he's never been allowed a chance because of whatever things and uh in the end they win uh, with various uh, misadventures along the way. It's the, in the end, they win bit, the sweet tea at the end that that just kind of, I was like, uh, it feels cowardice. Like it feels like if you made that last five minutes, maybe they try and they get like a yard chore, or maybe they try and they win, but it doesn't work out for some of them or something could play out in a way that's more interesting. They're like, So close to making the characters three dimensional, so close to making the film more. I agree with you.
0: We really we really have to be careful about letting kids know that if they fight against adult racist bullies and win that life gets better. We do not want them to know that
2: agree with a lot of what you've said, Lozzie. And I think actually what causes this movie to ultimately not be satisfying is that they're trying to do two different things in this movie. They're trying to make it a sports movie, which has a very specific narrative that it has to follow. Right. There are very specific tropes yeah. in sports movies. There is a a structure to that genre. There are specific beats you have to hit, but it's also trying to deconstruct American football culture and put that together with like the more smart uh, analytical teen culture that was sort of at the focus in the nineties in a lot of films. And it doesn't work because those two things fundamentally can't go together because if you're going to deconstruct football culture, you can't embrace the sports movie um, as a genre. And if yeah. you are embracing yeah. the sports movie as a genre, you can't deconstruct football culture. And so it it it's trying to be too many things because there are real moments of brilliance in this. Like when uh, I, I can't even remember. I'm just going to call him Dawson, too, where he uh Where he says, yeah, mocks, mocks, where he says like in the climactic speech where he's like, don't think about it as the next 40 years of our lives. That's stupid. Like, think about it as the next 24 minutes and then we'll move on. Right. And so, like, there are these like moments where this movie is trying to say something about because this is real. There are small towns in the U.S. that this is absolutely the reality, like where high school football is like the center of the social and cultural scene in these towns. Like parents are involved to this degree. Football coaches are involved to this degree. And so the fact that it tries to have a conversation about that is interesting, but it can't because it's constrained by the genre yeah. that it's a part of.
1: 100%. I 100% agree with that. I think it's it, it, it tries to engage with head trauma in football. It tries to engage with athletes being injured and being given injections to play through the pain just sacrificing youth on the altar of the ambition of an older white man, but it also like it makes the coach such a, a caricature that I I'm like, what would have been really interesting is actually if John Voight's character was actually a good coach, like actually was a was a brilliant coach. He's not. He's a bully, and that's all he is. And they never show us anything. They never show us that extra dimension to make us conflicted. They never show the gray any gray there but you're right you're absolutely right like the 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 football movie the sports movie therefore the team has to win at the end just kind of makes it unsatisfying It just ruins edges
0: the end of it Uh, i told tessa that the the kind of um bread like offense that they're playing is what everybody does now the coach is so horrified that they're not going to run a Put a running back in the background, it's like, okay, just wait a few years, you're gonna really hate what happens, but that wouldn't translate, I suppose, <laughs>
1: wildcat baby.
2: I will say though that your point about the racism is also very insightful because you do get this conversation that Mox has with the one black player on the mm-hmm. team that surprisingly holds up well, like he's like, no, like this is racism here's how it's how it works in the way that the coach calls certain plays. I'm expected to carry this team in certain ways, but I don't get any of the credit. And that is because that hmm. is the way that a lot of black athletes are treated is that they are, and these are his words, not mine, the workhorses of the team. And then they don't, but they're not celebrated in in that way that you see like these white, like quarterbacks, especially celebrated.
0: And this was a real life narrative into the 2000s and early teens when they shifted offensive style specifically, the lifetime of an NFL running back. Friday Night Lights has a very similar storyline with with Smash, Uh, but this is something that actually became a narrative popular. I mean, it was happening the whole time, but popularly became a narrative. And it was really interesting to see them kind of pun intended, I guess, because I realized it was going to happen, tackle. Yeah, so like they they reached for a few things. It's
2: true. Well, and I what I love and this is something that we can connect back to Dawson's Creek is that the Mox character is so sincere as well in the way that he views like football and life that even though he didn't notice this, like his his whiteness didn't allow him to actually see that this was happening on the team, as soon as it's explained to him, he is like an immediate good ally. Like where he's just like I'm sorry that that happened. Like, we're going to figure out a way to fix it. And that's not generally how that story goes in real life. But, you know, it, it was really interesting to see, like, that intersection of, like, the sincerity that we talked about before with them trying to tell the story about this toxicity in this specific subculture.
1: Oh, and right. achingly sincere. As, as again, proved by the fact that the squirty cream bikini scene... <laughs> ends up with him wrapping a uh, blanket around poor, poor Ali Lata and telling her she doesn't need to do this. You know, she doesn't need to squirty bikini herself.
2: Now he's just saying it "I to just, get you to laugh.
0: No, I just want to point out that that earlier, because I stopped a sentence at an inconvenient point to breathe, we all laughed. But Lazzie says, do you ever want to open your mouth and put some squirty cream in it? All of a sudden... <laughs> We don't know what double entendres are anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, because that was very much a single entendre. Yeah.
2: What What did you think about the scene in the strip club that is takes up like a good ten to fifteen minutes of this film?
1: Oh my goodness! Look, okay. Firstly, back to your point about uh, what was it? What did, the educational industrial complex where one of their teachers turns out to be a stripper because that that's the way she makes money. Okay, I'm going to say one positive thing about this, which is that I don't feel like they play this in a shameful way. I actually think they they're quite positive about it. Second thing, oh my God, this was so clearly an executive. Oh my God, we can have a scene in a strip club with, and we can show an awful lot of tits.
0: Let's do that.
1: <laughs> it's so gratuitous. I recall similar-ish time. There's um, the film Bring It On, and I remember watching um, some scene about it. There's a scene where they have a car wash, and uh, all of the uh, all of the um, cheerleaders like dress up in skimpy outfits and wash people's cars. And it's clearly clearly played gratuitously. It's clearly knowingly gratuitous in the script. But I remember seeing an interview where they said, oh, yeah, all the executives came down uh, for that scene. And I'm like, I bet you all the executives were were in the room when they filmed the strip club scene. It feels like I can see the thumbprints of studio executives on that scene. And I don't feel
2: good about it. <laughs> I, I mean, it's we've been talking a lot about headcanon. And Dawson but I feel like there's a lot of headcanon about Paul Walker in this too because this is very shortly before he will play a full grown cop in Fast and Furious the first Fast and Furious film
1: when was first Fast and Furious I thought that was much later it was 2001 right oh really yeah and
0: and so the thing about this is that that's so super great
2: yeah 2001
0: right so only a couple years later but What's really great about this is I'm so glad that that Brian or Lance or whatever his name is had this great experience with found family his senior year. Because if he hadn't, he might have never come over to Dom Toretto's side. It's just the priming of this found family idea. I think Varsity Blues might be a Fast and Furious prequel. <laughs>
2: Those piercing blue eyes. There
0: you go.
1: But I kind of again like that's kind of what's frustrating about this movie is it would be really easy to dismiss this as just a rubbish movie, but there are bits of it that are good, that are bits of it that have heart in it. There are bits of it that that like are trying to address things, and as you say, they're either crushed by the narrative or crushed by the studio or or squeezed into into the rushed ending like one of the things i really noticed about the ending is they do the usual voiceover ending of and this character went off here and this character went off here the two very prominent female characters do not get a voiceover commentary about what happened to them they get so little agency in the film and amy smart is shown to be um interesting Ali lottery is they try to make a three-dimensional not just the three dimensional nature of her bikini, and um, you know, <laughs> just looking at so straight down the eyes. Uh, uh, so it's I, I like I don't want to dismiss this film. It it was trying to do stuff. Did it succeed? I don't think so. But it, I really want to give it a bit of credit. Would
2: for you that. recommend this film to anyone?
1: Yeah, why not? If nothing else, you, like me, can find out where that not-another-team-movie an- scene with Chris Evans originated from, because I did not realize it was from this film, and I was quite surprised, and I went, oh, it's the Chris <laughs> Evans scene.
0: All right, from moving from something that tries to have heart, that doesn't give female agency, let's move to something that doesn't have a heart, dot, 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 or does it, but is all about women with agency.
2: I was going to say, this also moves us into staying on the track with our James Vanderbeek discussion. This moves us into a very meta space with James yes. Vanderbeek.
0: Yes. So, of course, I am talking about Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. This is a show created by Nanashka Khan, who is the creator of the much longer running show, to its detriment, Fresh Off the Boat. This is quite a show that <laughs> Tessa made me watch.
2: Do you want to tell our listeners what the show is about?
0: The show is about a girl, a young woman who's moved from Indiana to the big city to live out her dreams of working for a giant business.
2: Wall Street. Wall Street, Wall business. Street business. Doing, doing right. money business. Doing.
0: Yes. <laughs> working with a Vincent adult man on Wall Street. And she has to, because the company immediately goes under... She has to find a roommate, and she goes to apply to live in an apartment with our B in Apartment 23, Chloe, played by Jessica Jones herself, Kristen Ritter. And the show is all about what happens if you have a nightmare of a roommate played by Kristen Ritter. (laughs) But June, our, our plucky heroine from Indiana... Is is not to be bested by the bee in apartment twenty-three, and an unlikely friendship occurs, which is the first of two unlikely friendships on the show because Chloe, her best friend, is none other than James Vanderbeek himself. And by that I mean James Vanderbeek playing James Vanderbeek.
2: Or a heightened version of James Vanderbeek. Yes.
0: <laughs> but once again, Dawson Leary is playing James Vanderbeek. <laughs> And it's it's great. It's great.
2: How how does this line up with other sitcoms that you've seen?
0: Well, I mean, it's it's a lot like Selfie in that it was clearly doomed to fail. Unlike Selfie, though, this was good, right? Because Selfie only had the the chemistry of the actors and some good writing, but couldn't overcome its premise. This was a good premise. I think they might have run out of steam about two thirds of the way through. Like, I think the, I, th- I I don't know. I think they ran out of good ideas, which is a shame because this is a show that could have run for a while, but it had a weird place because they were both on ABC, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah they, yeah, they were both on ABC, but Selfie got canceled like immediately, almost immediately. Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 was renewed for a second season only to then be canceled before it could air all its episodes.
2: And the episodes aired out of order, correct?
0: Oh boy. This uh, is a
2: common thing.
1: So, so so out of order. It's okay, We ended
0: I up I ended up finding the correct production order and so after a false start, we watched them in order. And I'm like, how how would this work if you didn't see them? It would make no sense. It would be unintelligible. But there is a through line to the story. You are able, because of streaming, to watch them in the correct order, which you should absolutely do if you watch this. Yeah,
2: definitely look up the correct order before you watch them. Didn't this happen to Happy Endings as well? Yes,
0: Andy talked about this way back at the inception of the podcast. Much,
1: much less so to Happy Endings. A little bit in the first season, uh, occasionally in the like last couple of episodes of each season, but Happy Endings got like three 20-plus episode seasons rather than like, I think the first season of Don't Trust the Bee was like mid-season, and it's it's like half, 13 episodes or something, and then you've got, I don't know. Th- there's there's not that many episodes. of
0: Yeah, so this show doesn't have a lot in common with Dawson's Creek other than James Vanderbeek and that it was a mid-season replacement they both were
2: well i i will say i want to ask you about James Vanderbeek playing a version of himself in this but even in like the first episode there are a lot of references to both Dawson's Creek and Varsity Blues
0: well i mean the most you know one of the promo images from this show is Kristen Ritter Wearing, what is it, Lassie? What is it she wears? You, you've got what? to say the thing again <laughs> about the squirty stuff.
1: Oh, um, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not your performing. <laughs> your
0: well, let's see how you feel about that. When I say that in the most infamous promotional image for this show, Kristen Ritter is wearing the whipped cream bikini from Varsity Blues. You know, let that go?
1: Look, I don't, I don't, I find it tough to respect your culture at all all times, (laughs) but uh, in this case, uh...
2: well, and like June is like a longtime fan of Dawson's Creek, which is like her initial (laughs) understanding of him as a person.
0: Yeah, Busy Phillips, who is a later addition to the Dawson's cast, shows up in an episode about James Vanderbeek finally deciding that he wants to do a reunion of Dawson's Creek. Finding out that Chloe has written the letter that he receives every year from uh, Michelle Williams, Joshua Jackson and Katie Holmes begging for the reunion because she wants to make sure that his ego is stroked once a year because on that day he will pay for and do anything she asks. That is what we're talking about on this show.
1: Is that like the first episode of the second season yes. as well?
0: Well, who knows? Who I can't, knows? I can't remember
1: because it's yeah, so. Yeah, who, who knows exactly?
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you mean the second season, as in the episodes that they wrote for the second season, or the episodes uh, from the yeah. first season that they, you know, said, "Wait, we'll show them in the second season," or the episodes from the second season that were never released online and were, or that were only released online after the show was canceled? Which second season would that be?
2: I apologize. <laughs> well, what did you think about the characters in the show, specifically the dynamic between Chloe and June?
0: So I, I mean, I I loved this show. I loved these characters. I love that that June is this, you know, she's this goody two shoes, you know, know it all who slowly starts to break out of that shell because of what Chloe does to her and how Chloe like Tessa and I have an inside joke about this but the fact that Chloe has a heart and she will go to any length to keep people from seeing it but but the dynamic is is that June just is going to pry that that coating open to get to the the soft inner heart
2: no matter what no horrible matter things what, Chloe does at to her any cost
0: <laughs> And it's 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 great. I mean, it's it's the best possible version of that dynamic. And Kristen Ritter is is a treasure in this way. Kristen
2: Ritter is one of the few actors on television that can do both comedy and drama extremely well. Like she I first saw her in Veronica Mars. Obviously, this was the second role I had ever seen her in. And it just blew my mind that she then turned around and did a lot of dramatic you know, roles listen. that she's critically claimed for.
0: Listen, Disney, guys, Kevin, just want to talk to you for a second here. And I want to say, you can do what you want with casting of some of these characters that you brought over from you know Fox and MCU television and all that. But you got to do two things. Two things for me. One, Taylor Swift, Dazzler. And two... <laughs> and two, please rehire Kristen Ritter as Jessica Jones. That's that's all I ask. Cast whoever the hell you want as Wolverine. I don't care. These are the two I want.
1: I should be Daphne Keen. Uh so I do care and should be Daphne Keen. Fair. She's uh she's doing the new Orphan Black follow-up. Kristen
2: Ritter, she? yes. That is she is currently in, yeah. in production for that.
0: Which is funny because Tatiana Maslani is now in the MCU. Yeah, there you go.
2: There you go. Yeah,
1: which I'm very much looking forward to seeing, depending on when this is (laughs) released tomorrow, yesterday. Yes, we have seen it
0: already at this point, and it was... Something. It was something. Yeah,
2: fill in the blank here, depending on how it went. What I love about Chloe in this show is that she is the human embodiment of a cat. Like, anything that you think a cat might do she basically does in this show like she is the proverbial bitch but it's like more than that like she it's like every single episode she is trying to find a way to top whatever she did in the previous episode
0: listen Lassie without really going into a whole lot of detail that will tell you way more than you need to know about us when when Tessa entered my life I had a cat who we could call sadistic yeah, in some that's ways a, that's
2: a good way of describing her
1: so yeah. A yeah. cat.
0: well tessa has definitely seen advanced level mind games at stake between me and my my now deceased cat like
1: <laughs> <laughs> clip, it, clip that as your yeah. promo Sc- for the show like the screaming
0: <laughs> at each other where we actually had real conversations i've never
2: seen a cat actually engage in a conversation with a person before much less a screaming match with a person before
0: so this is kind of where this comes from. But yes, it is. If you've ever had an antagonistic relationship with a cat, that is what you're watching on this show.
1: I think that's a very very good description.
0: And and here's the thing though. Like we we talk about you know, and and we can talk a little bit more in this you know super sized episode about James Vanderbeek we can actually talk about James Vanderbeek <laughs> but I just want to say that the real I have not told you who the real star of the show is yet if you're unfamiliar with Don't trust the Bee in apartment 23 you don't know that Eric Andre is on this show and boy any any show that he's on is fun and and he has this is some his of the most best lines on this show this is his most restrained role. And it's actually fun if you've seen him fully unhinged to think that that person lives in this character. It works. It works.
1: That's really interesting because I've not seen him in anything else. So I'm like, yeah, he's fine. (laughs) Like, I saw that you were like, Eric Andre is the real star. And I'm like... (laughs) no christian richard is the real show well
2: but he has some of the best lines though like uh what's the one that he's i'm literally trying to remember it where he's like i don't if you're you know the one where he's like if you're in a sack full of memory cats you can only cut your way out like when he's (laughs) when he's drunk talking to james vanderbeek and then uh yeah the one where he writes the card for june and he has like a crush on her and he panics and writes, I don't care what you do <laughs> on the card, which is the most relatable thing about the entire show. We've all panicked in front of someone we liked and said something very stupid. And that that worked for me.
0: Do you uh, remember what stupid thing you said to me? I don't. I think you played it pretty cool.
2: I don't remember. Probably something very <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it,
0: ha- it just hasn't happened yet. Did you say I've got a kind of Yeah. <laughs> <in it." laughs>
2: Something like that. But I was gonna ask you, Lazie, because I know before we were doing this episode, you had said that Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment Twenty Three is one of your favorite sitcoms.
1: I think Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment Twenty Three is the second best sitcom that I've seen. Okay, first, in, from the US. First of all,
0: what's the happy what's, Okay. What's what's the third best? From the US. Yeah. Um the top two Brooklyn indicates 99. the existence Brooklyn. of a top three. So Brooklyn nine nine. All right.
2: Oh, that's pretty solid Exceptual. actually yeah yeah although <laughs> Chloe herself has a very definite opinion of cops in which she says no cops only trank gun which I think is also my opinion of cops I- I'm adopting that as my <laughs> as my new opinion no cops just trank gun
1: <laughs> yeah I'm not sure I'm gonna defer to Chloe's opinion <laughs> on what's the best form of legal and not legal but um, yeah, uh, but what a character. I mean, like Chloe is just probably one of the greatest characters, sitcom characters ever. She's like Phoebe if you would like her. She's like <laughs> Phoebe if she was funny. She's like Phoebe if she was played by a decent actor. She's like Phoebe if she was a character that anyone wanted to spend any time with and wasn't just random.
0: She's like Phoebe if Phoebe lived in a universe with people who aren't white.
1: Yes, yes. But also, like to your point about Eric Andre being the real star, like I think both Luther and Robin are more interesting characters than random guy who has a crush on June. Like I honestly think that Luther is a far more interesting
0: character. <laughs> Luther is James Vanderbeek's assistant, and he is he is wonderful. That is a really good character role. It's very. Um, it's very broadly drawn, but and so it's really easy to miss on those kinds of roles. But in in this, it it's done in a very nuanced way. It's acted very well. Uh, I I don't know about I don't know about Robin. I think they just couldn't figure out what to do with her. Her role got reduced. Um, yeah, that's in the second in whatever the second season is. Uh, Robin is the previous roommate uh, who who has, we'll, we'll just say affectionately, is obsessed with Chloe.
2: That's a very mild way of putting that character. Yes. <laughs> I will say my least favorite character is Eli.
0: Eli,
1: I hate. That's an awful character. Th- that's just like, no, it makes no sense. It's not funny. He- he's a pervert from... Across the way, and
0: it's not. Classically, that's a good TV character for sitcoms, though. Like, I don't want. I don't know why it didn't work in this one.
2: Well, I see. I think it would have worked if he wasn't a pervert. Like, if he was just their neighbor who also like interacted with them on a daily basis through the window and was a health inspector. Like, New York
0: City Wilson. Yeah, for like they those of you who know what home improvement
2: is. <laughs> they could have done something much better with that character and actually not changed his location, which is mostly talking to them through a window, but
1: it's it's Kramer as well, yeah. right? Like it's the same character and I don't care for Kramer. Uh I mean it's um but I agree Eli but Luther like he, you know, uh, there's a great line delivery that he makes after a a halloween party where he's dressed as a cherub and uh this i guess uh attendant that he's been crushing on comes to the party as well and he comes back after being on a date with him and says mario doesn't like to hold hands on the subway and i don't know i just okay but I don't know. It's just a wonderful, like, it's such an unnecessary line that you would expect would be cut because it's not key to the plot and it's not one of the main characters saying it. And it's not really funny, but it's just such a wonderful delivery and such an interesting part of the character.
0: Before we turn this podcast into the epic podcast that it clearly already is, (laughs) let's make sure that we spend a little time Talking about the ostensible subject of this episode, James Vanderbeek.
2: Wait, 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 wait. You forgot something very important because you mentioned that this was made by the same person who did Fresh Off the Boat.
0: I'm not there yet. Is it better than Fresh I Off? I haven't gotten there okay, yet. You, haven't, you went out of order. Then. Okay. Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. I love Fresh Off. am just going to cut that out Take, and use my get a segue. glass of cream. <laughs> I cream. I asked Tessa the other day, can you, can, how often. When she's recording with Nigel, does she have to repeat the segue? Because in between the time that she's taken the breath and started the segue, Nigel's thought of something and is already like mid thought, and, and it's like every time. It's yeah, every but, time.
2: But Nigel, Nigel's good. Nigel's the thoughts are generally. Good.
0: Are 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 you saying yours aren't? <laughs> Maybe not as good as Nigel. No. Yeah. I, <laughs>
1: I, I I did not take that implication. I took the implication that perhaps someone else's thoughts
0: weren't discussed.
2: Ooh. Divorce. I making think, making another oh, hey, fresh off the boat reference. I think Divorce. we need a new guest for next
0: week. Anyway.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll be back, baby. How many how many references to squirty cream can we make next week? That's the real, that's the real question. Yeah. No,
1: the real question is: We have spent an hour and nearly three quarters (laughs) talking about three things. How much content we got to cover in a Hugo's episode? (laughs)
0: So, hey, remember the music episode we did? Oh, right, it was episodes. Anyway, so I okay. Before we come to that key question, because I might leave this in the episode at this point, (laughs) Dawson. Or James Vanderbeek, depending on your pleasure here. His character, as we've said several times, is a heightened version. He lives in the penthouse of the building that Chloe and June live in. He has, he has storylines. He has a frenemy relationship with Dean Kane that is exacerbated when he is picked to be on Dancing with the Stars. Um, he has his own brand of jeans that literally work out that that works out well
1: oh no no but let's be clear those jeans have bj written on, yeah, they do. on the ass <laughs> they do beak
0: jeans beak jeans beak jeans. Beak jeans. and they're like and, and so the whole side so, you know it's like what if what if you had you know how jeans jeans that make a girl's butt look very good what if we did that for guys and then put bj on them yep right so they're what very are we
2: popular and with then, the and then have a.
1: <laughs> and then have a have a uh, a uh, billboard next to it saying, that's a spicy meatball. That's
0: right. So what do we think about the beak? In on this the show? show? On this show. I
1: think he's very good. And I think the way you can tell that he's very good is how not very good Dean Kane is in playing Dean Kane. I think that um, he's very happy to take the piss out of himself. He's very happy to play himself up. It doesn't feel like anything's off limits. He's I think he's great. And uh yeah, I think the, the real comparison is with Dean Kane, who is an awful person anyway, but like is um is stilted and not that natural. I think uh I think Dawson does a good job. Well done, Dawson
2: that part of why this works is because of his chemistry with Kristen Ritter and her character in this, because they're, they're playing, like, best friends. And the way in which they interact with each other, like, she amuses him, but also she takes the piss out of him in ways that I think this particular version of himself needs. And he provides access for her to do more and more epic things with her life because you know he's got the celebrity and the money to sort of pull that off but like they actually do come across as very good friends and i think that that works very well in this show
1: i think he has chemistry with all of them. oh though. yeah like, 100%. he has chemistry with june he has chemistry with luther obviously but he also has chemistry with eric andre and like there's a couple of random scenes where they get thrown together and <laughs> Um, and they work well off each other. There's the, the episode where they go to the Hamptons. I was just thinking about that.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I guess we should just hold on. Before I ask you this question, let's kind of put a, a punctuation mark on this segment. Because believe it or not, we have one more short segment left to go. But before we get there, oh my God. I know, it'll be short, mercifully short. Tessa, we already know what Lossie thinks because don't trust the Be an Apartment tw- 23 is his second favorite American comedy that was sitcom. come is Tessa fresh off the boat better or not as better.
2: This is such a hard question, despite the way it was phrased it- <laughs> because I think the first three seasons of fresh off the boat are just excellent seasons of television. It, it does go on way too long. Like fresh off the boat ran out of steam after, the well, first three or four seasons and nobody wanted to be there anymore. And it was very obvious, like Constance Wu's career, Constant yeah. Wu's career was taking <clears throat> off.
0: We, we have
2: Randall Park's career was taking off.
0: I mean, I don't say it jokingly, but don't trust the bee in apartment 23 did not result with anybody making a suicide attempt. Right. Yeah. So, so
2: it, you know, there, there is that aspect of it, but like, it's just hard. Cause like, I, Ugh, I love Constant Smooth so much. Um, I will you, could, you
0: could watch Hustlers, though.
2: Yeah, that's true. I feel like as a show, Fresh Off the Boat is more even in its quality than Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. However, the highs of Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 might be greater than the highs of Fresh Off the Boat. Okay. That is my answer.
0: You should absolutely watch this show if you have not seen it, though.
2: Yes, 100%. So,
0: Agreed. All right. So finally, before we close this out, I have two questions, and I want to go around, and I want to hear your answers. Lossie, I'll start with you on this one. If you were to hear that the next great drama, and I mean, this could be a Gillian Anderson thing, so it doesn't have to be America. It could be coming from, from your area. But if you heard that the next great drama, British or American, coming this fall, stars Dawson Leary himself, James Vanderbeek. How do you feel? Uh, surprised. Is it gonna? Is it, uh, are you gonna watch it? Do you believe Maybe. in the beat? Uh,
1: I, I don't think he's a great dramatic actor.
0: I think he's funny
1: on Don't Trust a Bitch. I think um, he's playing Dawson in everything else. Uh, if you were to say to me uh, it's Pacey Witter, I would be with you in a heartbeat. Ah,
0: oh, Joshua Jackson. There you go. Join us in three years or so for <laughs> Tessa watches fringe. <clears throat> It'll be a good time. Same question, Tessa.
2: I as someone who had not seen a lot of James Vanderbeek outside of Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, which by the way, his character makes much more sense now. I <laughs> uh i don't know if i really i really like him like Lazi said i think he's very funny i like him in dawson he works as like a teen star very well but i i mean i would have to i'd have to hear more about the show i'd have to hear like the premise who else was in it I, i'm not gonna follow james Vanderbeek right. from show to show
1: is he just as a question to back to your question sam is it about a random foreign island where there are planes landing and the runway is played by his forehead why or... are you
0: doing this
2: oh there is a great joke in don't trust the Bee, uh in apartment 23 where i'm trying to remember who says it i think it might be eric andre actually who says that uh he's his body has grown into his head mm-hmm. unlike when he was on Dawson's Creek, where his head is clearly way too big for his body, and that is something I actually thought while watching Dawson's Creek. So that was a really fun like moment in Don't Trust the Bee. We're like, oh, good, it wasn't just me. A...
1: <laughs> he reshoots a scene from Dawson's Creek. In like, uh, we, we really the point of this po- this podcast is everyone should watch Don't uh, Trust the yes. Bee. Oh yeah, like, like he reshoots a scene from Dawson's where he. Whatever 15 20 years later is playing Dawson with the yes. wig and everything. <laughs> There's it's
0: some incredible. good payoff there. I and and to be clear, don't trust the Bean apartment 23 is why we did this episode, which is why we waited over an hour to talk about it. <laughs> I, we we did to answer this question, we talked about this a little while ago. Jack, uh, our, our friend Jack mentioned the other day that perhaps this will end up being Michelle Williams's Oscar year. And that really got me thinking about these four actors from Dawson's Creek, thinking about the fact that that is where I expect to see Michelle Williams. I do expect her to see, to see her doing Oscar-caliber performances. And then it really made me think about Joshua Jackson. The second they tell me Joshua Jackson's on a new TV show, I'm watching it. Like, no, like... You had me at hello.
1: Even when it's just someone who looks like Joshua Jackson
0: on Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, but I've seen Borgen, so I actually knew what was happening here.
1: But did you see that? Did you see Joshua Jackson's Instagram post saying, hey, no one told me I was cast on Game of Thrones? Now,
0: I will tell you when I saw Borgen, I was like, I didn't know. I didn't know that Joshua Jackson <laughs> did this. So yeah, you're right. But it, but it's really interesting how the two ostensible stars of Dawson's Creek, like I know why Katie Holmes is not around a lot. I hope, I hope she gets she gets back at some point. But it really, I think it's interesting that James Vanderbeek really has had the most under the radar career. You know, he's a working actor, but I, you know I can't help but root for the guy. I don't know Spielberg. Yeah. Spielberg, come on, bro. Yeah. Anyway,
1: I think I think I would sum him sum him up with with the sweet tea at the end yeah. of uh, Varsity Blues, right? Yeah. He gives that speech. So that there's there's two parts to that scene. There's the first part of that scene where they're all confronting the coach who's trying to inject, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> inject something X X factor X, I don't know what, into the running back's leg uh, so that he can make one play and probably ruin his life. I don't know, he's made up. And they all confront him, and I think Fenderbeek does a great job in that scene, uh, and they all do. The immediate follow-on from it is him giving a speech, telling them about, as you mentioned earlier, Tessa, it's not the next 40 years, it's the next, next 24 minutes – which is a great sentiment and there's great material for a speech there i never am convinced by james vanderbeek giving it i don't think i don't find him a leader i don't find him a real leading man i think that's that's his tragedy i think he's a great supporting actor. i think he's a great comic actor
2: not not to belabor this man. but would that role have been better if they had swapped paul mm. rocker paul walker for that yeah. character and james vanderbeek played the the quarterback who gets hurt. Like if they had swapped roles.
0: But that's interesting because, because Vanderbeek was huge at that point and Paul Walker wasn't. Right. It's so interesting how things shift. That's really good.
1: So what's really interesting is, is Paul Walker in, in his role that he's actually in, in that film, when he comes back randomly to be the coach effectively <laughs> for the last <laughs> two plays, I don't know, but he, there's a, a lack of malice. Again, I, like I feel like we're lingering more on on Varsity Blues, but that's again because I think there's there's a kernel of something in that film, and I think it's because you see, like you see James Van Der Beek's character reach back out to the old quarterback. They're not antagonistic. There's never any antagonism between them. They are friends, and you see them rolling out. And I think Paul Walker does a great job of actually playing that role quite straight. Not not. Not being malice. No, there's no malice. There's no antagonism. There's no upset about being injured, and basically his his whole career, his old dream being over. And there's writing at that as well, of course. But so I don't know is the
0: answer. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's okay. Let's move to my final question then. Tessa, start with you on this one. What have we learned today
2: about James Vanderbeek?
0: I. I. Sure. Or anything else.
2: To steal Lazio's answer, he's fine. (laughs) Like, I don't, I mean, like,
0: I. I I shouldn't have started with you. I should have started with Lazio because he he, would have taken that question and run with it.
2: He had a very specific time in the late 90s, early aughts, where he was a big deal. And it's always fun to see him pop up in things now. But, I mean, like, yeah, I, I don't seek out things. I mean, besides for this episode, I don't seek out things with him in it.
0: Lazi, what did what have we learned today?
1: James Van Der Beek is in things that have actually lasted better than you thought they might have. Good. And yes. he's not the best thing in any of them, but he's pretty solid in all of them.
0: That is very similar to what I think I've learned. I've learned two things today. I've actually learned a lot today, but I'm going to talk about two. The first one is very much very similar to what you said. There are actors who and so you could argue that James Vanderbeek had the had the good fortune to be attached to all of these things. Or you could argue that while James Vanderbeek is not the son in any of these projects, despite being the titular character in Dawson's Creek, he is able to bring something to these projects that make them you know it's the sum is more than the you know the total of its parts right like he's able to bring something beyond his performance that actually makes these good and you you know we never know what it is that makes you know these projects what they are maybe that's what we don't know maybe he actually brings it i don't know could be i also learned though lazey i actually think so so based on what you said i am pretty sure that what they inject into paul walker's knee is like a combination of cortisone narcotics and weapon X
1: okay so it's adamantium so you think I think it's a
0: combination of the three yeah
1: okay so you don't think it's uh john sublime you don't think it's kick no (laughs) you don't think it's mutant growth hormone you don't think it's mother vine did you want me to list all of the 20 different X-Men plots that could be related this is, to this? This is, I feel like... Do you think you've made a mistake? Is, is this our this
0: first mansplain? <laughs> uh, it's been almost two hours.
2: This episode's almost as long as a Nanny Ogg episode. Have no, fun editing do it. Do it's not tell lies. <laughs>
0: it's a good hour, hour shorter. <laughs> <laughs> She's. What
1: time are you? The, what, who's the ugly? Who's the most ugly sexy character that we've seen? I don't think there are any. I think that's that's the the nature of American television. Is. Is yeah,
2: you Rando don't really get. That. You don't really get an ugly sexy character. No. Yeah. Nothing on the le, not nothing on yeah. the level of Grebo.
0: No, I mean Stephen Merchant only has a career because he's British, right? Yep. Yeah. Simon
1: Pegg Simon Pegg would not have. <sighs> If he hadn't started here and been successful here, would he have been, would he be Scotty? No.
0: No. Should he be?
2: Absolutely. Well,
0: there you go. Yeah, he he should be. Okay. So next time on Monkey Off My Backlog, Lossie joins us again to talk about the nominees for this year's Hugo Awards. All
1: I would say is that... um, I didn't f- think that I had too much to say about James Vanderbeek, but I've got a lot to say about the Hugo Awards as we hit two hours on this. Podcast.
2: This is going to be fun. Oh, boy. All right.
0: <laughs>
1: no, no, it's okay. Quantum Leap is not nominated this year. <laughs> uh,
0: Ozzy, so where can people find you online? Uh, I am at Mina
1: Englishman on uh, Twitter or at squirtcream Cream 99 <laughs> on
0: Instagram. Tessa. Where can people find you online? And tell them about that podcast.
2: You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel, aforementioned, and I read through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club.
0: You can find me online at Sam underscore Morris nine. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you crossed off your list lately. What you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes. Maybe you want us to do a Joshua Jackson episode. Ooh. I don't know. Ooh. Yeah. Or anything else that comes to mind, find us on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at monkey backlog, because we really will apparently talk about anything. <laughs> Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Open up your morning light, say a little prayer for I, and get that monkey off your back.
2: (laughs) Yay, we did it. At two hours, one minute, and 29 seconds.